in New Orleans. I was in a bookstore, and I was looking at first editions, as I did, just out of curiosity. And I asked if they had any any papers or photographs or anything by Tennessee Williams there. And they did. And they handed me a sort of plastic sheaf of papers. And I looked through it, and almost the first one I saw said Brookings Hall, Washington University. And I was just shocked Hmm. that here in a New Orleans bookstore, I'd see something from my own university. So I opened it up, and I realized that it was Williams Greek, not Latin, but Greek examination. There you go. Sorry about that. He had taken ancient Greek and failed it. And that was the other huge reason why Williams left. He failed a course in ancient Greek. And I looked through the exam, and I was literally shaking, touching this exam from 1937, the spring of 1937, and has his name on it, T.H. Williams. Of course, he hadn't become Tennessee yet. He was Tom, Thomas Lanier Williams. (laughs) And I I thumb through the exam, as one would, and I see the grades D+, D-, F, C, etc., and I just turned to the last page. And on the facing of the last page is an original poem. And I knew this is just a Greek exam. Nobody has seen this poem before. Wow. And I read the poem. And the poem was titled Sad Song. But the word sad, you could see very clearly from the way it had been printed in pencil, was erased, and over the word sad was the word blue song. Blue is a very significant color in William's work, and it's really a a poem of despair in his present moment. Williams knew he was failing the exam. He knew he was failing at Washington University, that this play had been poorly received, and his life was in tatters. And he remember also, he was not the typical undergraduate. He was 26 years old, so he was not a kid. He had produced several plays already, and he was a compulsive writer, but it was all ending in failure. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast originates from and connects the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Our guest knows books. Matter of fact, he is the author of Blue Song, St. Louis in the Life and Work of Tennessee Williams. It's a new book that has been published by the University of Missouri Press. It talks about—I'm going to let him talk about it. Henry Schwey, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Hey, Henry. Thank you so much. Both of you appreciate it. Now, Blue Song, I, I was not familiar, and I'm really intrigued by this. And for those of you who don't know, Henry has a very esteemed background of what he does. He's actually a professor at Washington University. He's done a lot of theater. He's done a lot of writing. And he has other, some other very famous books. But he is captivated by Tennessee Williams. And I guess my question, first question to you is, when did that happen and how did that happen? Really? That's interesting. You phrased that question in a, in a fascinating way, because my interest in Tennessee Williams goes way, way back to high school. And 
so I, I was, I, I also discovered relatively recently that when I was in high school and I was enamored by William's sense of rebellion against his world, and specifically, of course, against St. Louis, I was living eight floors down from him in the same building in New York City. Cut it out. And I just discovered this at 15 West 72nd Street. But my interest in Williams goes back to The Glass Menagerie, his great play about St. Louis, of course. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to a kind of a particular scene. It's scene three in the play, if anyone knows the play really well, where he's quarreling with his mother and his mother is accusing him of going out nights. And Tom, the character in, in The Glass Menagerie, says, yesterday you confiscated my books. You had the nerve to. And Amanda, his mother, writes, says, I took that horrible novel back to the library. Yes, that hideous book by that insane Mr. Lawrence. And <laughs> that line really captivated me because of what I was going through with my own adolescence. And so that started my interest in Tennessee Williams. So I was a teenager then. Fast forward to 1987, when I began at Washington University as chair of the Performing Arts Department, and I was told that Williams had attended the university and had left unhappily, and also that he had written a play while he was here, but that it had been unpublished, and no one really knew about it only that the students in the class despised it. And the rejection of the play was one of the reasons why Williams left both Washington University without a graduation, without graduating, and also left St. Louis. So that began intoxication, really, finding out who was this person, really. And then fast forward again to 2004-05, and WashU suggested that in honor of the sesquicentennial celebration that the university was holding, that we celebrate great alumni. And I alerted them to the fact that Tennessee Williams was not an alumnus, but he was certainly great. And they supported a conference that I held at Washington University honoring Williams. So all of this was grist and in some way led me to the writing of this book. I, and I was reading the story about how you found because I want to continue that same kind of line, because I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but you love St. Louis as much as Tennessee William loves, loved like New Orleans or New York. And you guys just like exchange roles <laughs> and exchange loves. And you married a fellow U-Cityan. Both Mark and I are U-Cityans. Yeah. And you found this poem... And it deals with a Latin failure, and I'll leave it at that and let you tell the rest of the story. I was, after um, this conference in 2004, I went to New Orleans to speak about this play, the one-act play, because, of course, it hadn't been published yet, and no one knew about it. And I found that the play, although it had been a source of real pain for Williams, was actually quite fascinating. And... People will get a chance to hear it at the Jewish Book Festival um, next Sunday on the 14th at 7 p.m. But I was in New Orleans speaking about this one-act play called Me Vasha, 
and I can describe it in more detail if we have time. I was in a bookstore, and I was looking at first editions, as I did, just out of curiosity, and I asked if they had any any papers or photographs or anything by Tennessee Williams there. And they did. And they handed me a sort of plastic sheaf of papers. And I looked through it, and almost the first one I saw said Brookings Hall, Washington University. And I was just shocked hmm. that here in a New Orleans bookstore, I'd see something from my own university. So right. I opened it up, and I realized that it was Williams Greek, not Latin, but Greek examination. There you go. Sorry about that. He had taken ancient Greek and failed it. And that was the other huge reason why Williams left. He failed a course in ancient Greek. And I looked through the exam, and I was literally shaking, touching this exam from 1937, the spring of 1937, and has his name on it, T.H. Williams. Of course, he hadn't become Tennessee yet. He was Tom. Thomas Lanier Williams. <laughs> and I go, th- I thumb through the exam as one would, and I see the grades D plus, D minus, F, C, etc. And I just turn to the last page. And on the facing of the last page is an original poem. And I knew this is just a Greek exam. Nobody has seen this poem before. Wow. And I read the poem, and the poem was titled Sad Song. But the word sad, you could see very clearly from the way it had been printed in pencil, was erased. And over the word sad was the word blue song. Blue is a very significant color in William's work. And it's really a a poem of despair. In his present moment, Williams knew he was failing the exam. He knew he was failing at Washington University, that this play had been poorly received, and his life was in tatters. And remember also, he was not the typical undergraduate. He was 26 years old. So he was not a kid. He had produced several plays already, and he was a compulsive writer. But it was all ending in failure. There was nothing going for him. And the, the poem itself is really a hymn of despair. It begins with the words, I am tired. I am tired of speech and of action. If you should meet me upon the street, do not question me, for I can tell you only my name and the name of the town I was born in. But that's enough. It does not matter whether tomorrow arrives anymore. If there is only this night and after it is morning, it will not matter now. I'm tired. I'm tired of speech and of action. In the heart of me, you will find a tiny handful of dust. Take it and blow it out upon the wind. Let the wind have it, and it will find its way home. And these lines of this poem just deeply resonated with me. It was anyone who has failed at anything, I think, can identify with William's mood, his absolute despair. He didn't know he would become one of the great playwrights in the history of the American theater. He just saw himself as a failure who nothing was ever good enough for his father, who bullied him and mm. called him Miss Nancy at home, and for his mother was smothered him with love. And he was also experiencing the fact that his older sister was, at that moment in 1937, institutionalized at St. Vincent's, 
So he had nothing going for him. And it's a poem of despair. It's interesting talking about, I can only tell you my name and the name of the town I was born in. Tennessee Williams was not born in St. Louis. He was born in Columbus, Mississippi. And I, I take this poem also as an attempt to sort of escape St. Louis, mm. which was, for the most part, always associated with difficult times for him. He didn't have a lot of warm fuzzies for St. Louis. He did not. But, of course, it wasn't so much St. Louis, although it was. He despised its what he considered its coldness, its smugness, its provinciality. And he learned to dislike St. Louis from his mother, who was very uncomfortable here. Remember, the family moved from a very rural background in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where they lived. And they came here when Tennessee was seven. And his mother was the daughter of the rector of Clarksdale, Mississippi. And so she occupied, and so did the grandchildren, Tennessee and Tom and Rose, Tom and Rose, a very privileged place in Clarksdale society. And when they came to the big city, to St. Louis, of course, nothing would be good enough. And it was really quite a come down, particularly for Edwina Williams. So my feeling is that the kids, Tom and Rose, were predisposed not to St. Louis and to find it uh, a fairly snob, cold play. And he did. He, he was ridiculed for his Southern accent here. He was not definitely not happy here. But as my book indicates, he could never have become the same playwright he was had he not come to St. Louis. Right. And St. Louis gave him things that he would not have had access to, certainly not in rural Mississippi in 1918. I thought that was an interesting point you made, and I had read that either in something that you had discussed previously about him, that St. Louis really gave him not the essence of who he was, but it gave him things to write about and yes. really get out of his soul. Absolutely, absolutely put. And I think all of which work, if you've read one play or a short story or, or an expert, all of William's work is forged in a sense of rebellion. And St. Louis, for better or worse, he called it St. Pollution, gave him something to rebel against. <laughs> I didn't know that. But even more than that, even more than St. Pollution, was the fact that St. Louis gave him a first-class education. St. Louis was a very prominent city, very progressive in terms of educational opportunities. And he went to Ben Blewett Junior High School, and he went to University City High School, and then attended University of Missouri briefly for three years, and until his father took him out of, of the university. But the educational opportunities that he received in the city, and this is before he got to Washington University, were enormous. And he never would have become the kind of writer he became had it not been for those educational opportunities and the wonderful teachers he had growing up. He had teachers who include, encouraged him to become a journalist, to write down his, his thoughts. He took a trip with his grandfather to Europe, and one of the teachers at U-City High asked him to write a travel log, and he put excerpts from that travel log in the U-City Pep. 
He wrote his first poems in 10th grade at Ben Blewett High, junior high. Wow. So there were tremendous, and in fact, he wrote a poem called Demon Smoke in 10th grade about the air pollution in St. Louis. It wasn't just, um, it wasn't just a figure of speech or an exclamation of disdain. St. Louis was highly polluted. It depended right. upon soft bituminous coal, and so that was a big issue in the 30s. So he was responsive to that as a poet, as a literary, as, as a young man who was a boy, who was, who was seeing these things and experiencing them and finding a way to articulate himself. So St. Louis gave him back a tremendous opportunity, and the sadness in a way, I think it's been rectified to some extent now. We have a, a Tennessee Williams Festival now in St. Louis, which will be in its sixth year, but the sadness is that St. Louis somehow took Tennessee Williams' own point of view. Instead of realizing how essential it was to his growth as an artist, we took the point of view that, nah, he hated it here, he wanted to leave, so why should we claim, as it were, kinship with him? But in fact, that's very short-sighted. My book argues that far from New York or New Orleans or any of the other places he lived, St. Louis is the key to understanding all of William's work. The work that preceded his going to New Orleans in 1938, and the work that came after, because Williams is that most autobiographical of authors. He is always writing about himself and his family. No matter where he lived, he was still writing about his sister Rose. He was still writing about his father and his bullying. He was still writing about his mother's smothering love. And so St. Louis and the world that he inhabited in St. Louis bequeathed to him so many actual, put it in, in air quotes, riches. St. Louis gave him the material that he was going to write about for the next 40, 50 years. It was a, a vein of creativity here in wow. St. Louis. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So Internal well, yeah. and not explicit, but implicit. Oh, yeah. And, of course, when Williams became an adolescent and then a young adult, he hated St. Louis. He wanted nothing more than to leave it. And he promulgated the fiction that he really wasn't from here, that he was from Mississippi, that he was from the South, the Deep South. But in fact, that was a... We have that with celebrities today, don't we? Yes. Where celebrities create a persona for themselves. They create a fiction that they want the public to adopt. You can almost name your celebrity but they create a mask. Tennessee Williams did this in the 30s. His mask, his persona, was a young man from the Deep South who somehow stumbled upon the Broadway stage and wrote these great plays. That's he a little more... To, yeah, that's more romantic yeah. than St. Louis. He wanted to... He romanticized himself. In fact, he deducted three years from the date of his birth. He was born in 1911. Mm-hmm. And he told people that he was born in 1914. And when he was finally caught on it, he said, well, I deducted the three years that I served hard labor at International Shoe Company on Washington (laughs) Avenue. That's where his father sent him. His father sent him. He pulled him out of college Mm -hmm. because Williams had failed ROTC, a course that was compulsory. He had failed ROTC, and he sent him to work as a shipping clerk 
at International Shoe where he, Cornelius Williams, was a manager. Hmm. And so William hated it there, of course. He hated those three years, and he hmm. felt justified in subtracting the three years later That's hilarious. from his birthday. But again, crazy. this talks about, really speaks to how he wanted to romanticize his past, not to, and of course, so he wanted to jump over the 20 years. He lived in St. Louis for 20 years. Wow. He called it his home. Between 1918, when a seven-year-old boy entered Union Station with his mother, mm -hmm. to 1938, when he left for New Orleans and changed his name on the way to Tennessee. So he wanted to leave it behind. But we can't leave our past behind, no. can we? No, I mean, we none can't. of us can. No, no. This is vibrant for us because we've had Kerry Houck on several times uh, on the show, yeah. and Mark and I went to the Tennessee this summer and where the uh, Glass Menagerie was performed. Yeah, and it was what a great venue. And I appreciate your... You're writing and talking about this because it's not a biographical uh, information you're giving on his life, because a lot of people know about that, but it, you're talking yeah. about the essence of his creative value and, and the essence of where all of this kind of sprung up from. It's, it seems to have come from his informative years as a young person, growing and, and developing, and, and then he tries to turn his back on it. <laughs> And he tries, you know, uh, Glass Menagerie is a play about an escape, right? right? right. It's about right. an attempt to, to vacate, to leave St. Louis. But if we read it closely, at least in my reading of this play, it's not a play about escape. It's a play about being unable to escape. Hmm. It's, you know, at the end of the Glass Menagerie, again... Tom, the protagonist, the autobiographical protagonist, tells us that he, that he left. Mm -hmm. I, he says, I didn't go to the moon, I went much further, mm -hmm. for time is the longest distance between two places. Not long after that, I was fired for writing a poem on the lid of a shoebox. I left St. Louis. I descended the steps of this fire escape for a last time. So hearing those lines, you think, okay, he left St. Louis behind. But a few lines later, he says this. The city swept about me like dead leaves that were brightly colored but torn away from the branches. I would have stopped, but I was pursued by something. It always came upon me unawares, taking me altogether by surprise. Perhaps I'm walking along a street at night in some strange city before I found companions. I pass the lighted window of a shop where perfume is sold. The window is filled with pieces of colored glass, tiny transparent bubbles in delicate colors like bits of shattered rainbow. Then all at once, my sister touches my shoulder. I turn around and look into her eyes. Oh, Laura, I tried to leave you behind me, but I am more faithful than I intended to be. And I think that anyone really who listens to those lines should understand that this is not a play about escape, but about a kind of haunting. He can never escape the image of his sister. And in the play, and in life, of course, when Williams wrote this play, he had only recently uh, found out that his dear sister, who was alter ego to him, they were called the couple in Mississippi, 
the way that they hung together, had received prefrontal lobotomy. And that his sister would never be an independent soul again. And his mother had consented to the surgery without telling him. He had no idea about it. He was then in New York. And so this would have been in 1943. Glass Menagerie is finished, although it had been started long before, is finished and first performed in 1944. And it's to me, it's very clear that it is not a play about escaping St. Louis, but it's about the way in which the past haunts the present and will always haunt the present. So at the end of the play, he encourages his sister, Laura, to blow out your candles, Laura, and so goodbye. But the implication seems very clear to me, at least, that those that you can never really blow them out. You can blow them out momentarily to have some sort of relief from the torment of the past, but you can never really blow them out. The place seems as though Tom leaves at the end, but in fact, I w- of, of the glass menagerie, but I would strongly argue that it's about not leaving. It's about physically leaving, and Tennessee Williams was constantly on the move throughout his entire adult life. His motto was, in French, en avant, let's go forward. But in fact, as much as he wanted to go forward, there was a countervalent movement in his life and in his work, which never allowed him to really be free of the past. Do you find that in other authors that you've researched? A quick interjection here, because you've done a lot of research on him, and you've written a lot on him. Do you find that authors or uh, people who are are writing or musicians, they just can't deal with their past, but they deal with it through either writing or through playing or through acting? Do you find that in the past, in what you've done? I think that I think it it is true of some, but I would also tell you that Williams is a special case. Why? First of all, you can see it in certain writers. James Joyce, mm-hmm. he was could be writing in in Trieste or in, in in Switzerland or Italy, but Dublin was always what he was writing about. You can see it in a writer like Franz Kafka, who's always writing about Prague, but unlike the others. Kafka really never left Prague. But in the case of Williams, it's extraordinary for a couple of reasons. And I think it's a really interesting question that you're asking, because Williams is so highly autobiographical in his work. In some ways, he found his subject very early. His subject is himself. In fact, there's a short story he wrote when he was 16 and was published when he was 17, which is about a brother and a sister. It's something that he wrote about throughout his life, his relationship with Rose. And so for a writer like that, the trajectory of his life and the inability to leave and the way that he's haunted by the past is more important than in a writer who is not so overtly autobiographical. And so it's more important with a writer like Tennessee Williams than it would be for many other writers. So Williams is writing about different places, most famously about the Deep South. If you think about a play like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or about 
New Orleans in A Streetcar Named Desire. But I would say that really so much of his writing is founded in the experiences, and as I said before, in the rebellion against St. Louis, mm-hmm. against its values, what he perceived of it as its values. He literally also returned. Tragically, he returned in 19... Maybe it's not so tragic. He returned in 1969. He was heavily addicted to drugs, to alcohol, and his brother found him basically collapsed in his home at Key West and in, and in, tricked him into flying back to see his mother in St. Louis and got him basically institutionalized at the Renard Wing of Barnes Hospital for three months in 1969, September to December of 1969, where he dried him, he was dried out cold turkey and taken off the drugs and the alcohol. So he was literally brought back to this horror show. He had to use his own name. He chose to use his own name. He wasn't Tennessee anymore. He was Tom Williams. And then the other great irony is that this man who wanted freedom more than anything else and writes about freedom, the bird imagery is fascinating in Williams' work about flight. He ended up buried here at Calvary Cemetery. Oh, yeah. And that is perhaps the largest irony of all, because (laughs) Williams left explicit instructions in a codicil at his in his will, that he wanted to be buried in a certain way. Actually, he wanted to have his remains put in a white sack and dropped off the coast of Florida. There was a particular poet that he venerated named Hart Crane, and he wanted his body, the sack with his remains in it, to be dropped as close as possible to where Hart Crane committed suicide. Instead, his brother Dakin brought the body back and is buried here in Calvary Cemetery. Um, on one hand, that's a terrible irony <laughs> and a kind of disservice. On the other hand, my book argues that it's very appropriate mm-hmm. that he never left. It is an indication of the fact that this man, who wanted more than anything else to go away and to leave, is buried here right next to his mother, right next to his sister. It's a fascinating kind of juxtaposition between his constant desire to fly and to flee St. Louis and to not be landlocked. Water is also very important. The one thing that gave him escape growing up was the Lorelei Natatorium, where he'd go swim. And he swam his entire life. It's another form of escape, isn't it? Yes. But he ends up in landlocked St. Louis, not off the Florida coast. I thought that was a great point that you made. Mm-hmm. It, it was it just very fitting, and it re- and really put a very interesting twist to his life. He couldn't get away, but he never was away uh-uh. because he never l- let those memories disintegrate, or he never got over those, or was able to deal with them. Gives a whole, yes, a whole new but on the other hand, the he was able to yeah. incorporate them yeah. into a tremendous body of work, whereas that, that feeling could crush someone else. In William's case, it was integrated into, through art into 
works that we still read and watch today. So on one hand, while the journey is tragic, it's a journey about not being able to escape your past. Mm -hmm. We also have to remember that he didn't end up that way, that he was able to transmute these feelings of sadness and desperation and, above all, claustrophobia into another form through writing, which was a compulsion for him. It was more than just an, a vocation. It was almost an addiction. We're talking I mean, to... He- he- at, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you, please. We're, we're talking to Henry Shve, Henry Shve. He's author of Blue Song, St. Louis in the Life and Work of Tennessee Williams. And he's going to be speaking at the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival, which is at the Jewish Community Center. And he's going to be doing that particular conversation on Sunday, November the 14th at 7 p.m. If you want more information, you can go to jccstl.com, jccstl.com. And Henry, you have another book coming out or on the burner about Tennessee Williams, don't you? I'm working on another study, which is more about the fact that Williams was fascinated by the visual arts, and that and it's really the other. The book is about how painting influenced him, huh. and that Williams himself was a painter, and that people don't know about this. No, and I my argument is that he his painting, which he started to do very, fairly early. <sighs> after he left St. Louis, and continued to do throughout his life, illuminates his plays and his other writings Now, as well. well so, you it, haven't found one of his paintings down there. Mark and I were talking like, <laughs> really? my goodness, you find this poem that's never been known about. It would be like finding a Lincoln letter about the Civil War behind some painting that somebody had in their attic or something. You haven't found one of Tennessee Williams' paintings yet, have you? Actually, I have. Not in the same way. With the with Blue Song, I found the the that piece of ephemera, and I contacted Washington University's Olin Library, and they very graciously uh, bought it. So it's now back in St. Louis. Good, if you like, in its rightful place. So anyone can go see the manuscript about Blue Book and the Blue Song there. In the case of the, of the paintings. I haven't really literally found something, but there are paintings that were locked in the the research library at Austin, Texas, hmm. that no one has seen or that no one really knows about that I have located. And that, for example, there's a painting which really illustrates one of his one of his play. And I think that something that I saw it was locked into the basement. So it's not on display, but it's there. And so as a researcher, that's what scholars do. They find things that, or they explore things that perhaps illuminate the work that people are not familiar with. Yeah, I've continued to try to explore that other side of Williams that may not be as well known. It's fascinating what you've done. And when I look at your Vita, I'm like, gosh, I'm like, Holy smokes, you have done a boatload of things on a boatload of people. We're just not talking about Tennessee Williams, Eugene O'Neill, Arthur Miller, et cetera, yes. et cetera. And well, that's very kind. You're, I always find it very fascinating, the linkage between 
someone who studies literature or who writes, and then the arts itself, the theater arts, and yeah. how you, uh, th- that kind of linkage, I, I'm just always fascinated by that. Is that something that you've always done? Yes. I really don't have any degrees, and my, my undergraduate degree was in comparative literature, and I mention that because theater is an interdisciplinary art, isn't it? Yes. If words are important, but it's not only the words. It's the stage pictures, it's the lighting, it's the makeup. It's the costume. So that has increasingly uh, been of interest to me. I started working in the theater when I was teaching in Holland, in the Netherlands. And I think, so that illuminates both this book about Tennessee Williams, but also the next one, because it's about how painting and literature are connected, interconnected. And they were for Williams, so again, this has to do with the kind of writer he, he was. That is, it's if he was writing about himself, it almost didn't matter whether the whether it was in a short story or a poem or a painting or a play. And he uses he tries out various genres, various formats. And for example, Glass Menagerie, is, in some ways, has its earliest incarnation as a short story. And and so he changes the genre to suit his whim. And often he would be writing several of these things simultaneously. He'd work on a one-act play as a test for the ideas for a longer play. He did that, with glass, again, with Glass Menagerie and with Streetcar. There's a comic version of Glass Menagerie, believe it or not, a one-act play called The Pretty Trap, in which Laura is not doomed at the end, but goes for a date with her beau Jim in Forest Park. Hmm. I'm serious. And, in fact, instead of being cowed by her mother, at the very end of The Pretty Trap, her mother says, won't you wear that, that, wear that shawl? It's too cold out. And she says, no, mother, I'm fine. She stands up to her mother. And so he gives the play a kind of comic spin just to test it out. That's, when I say he's addi- he was addicted to writing, that's what I'm talking about. He'd take the same material and spin it in different ways until he found the right form. There are hundreds of pages of The Glass Menagerie in draft form, and he just worked and worked until he found the right, the suitable form. And in this case, it's a very simple form, isn't it? Glass Menagerie is a very simple play. It's a one-act based. Williams himself was... Uh, living proof of the interconnection between the arts. Very and much. So that, that, that was of, of great interest to me. Very much so. I find that with artists, I think of Thomas Hart Benton off the top of my head, who would draw and sketch mm-hmm. and even make clay models and molds and then yes. look at it from different perspectives and things like that. And then finally, the, yes. the final painting would be way, way down the road after he had done mm-hmm. a lot of research. And he was very intricate and in, in exactly what he wanted. Things had to be perfect in, his, in yes. his paintings. I find that very interesting. By the way, did you know that there's a connection between Thomas Hart Benton and Tennessee Williams? Oh, tell. I love this. I love Benton. <laughs> tell. Because it sounds like you're really interested in Benton. Thomas Hart Benton did one of the initial sketches for Streetcar Named Desire. No way. And in the first paperback edition, they used the painting from this sketch for the cover. If you go back, it would have been in the late 40s. And it's a painting by Thomas Hart Benton of Blanche and Stanley in Streetcar Named Desire. 
But wow. you're right about Benton, and I think you're, you're also right about Tennessee Williams. It was about process. And he would literally write a draft, write a scene, throw it away, start working on the next one, throw it away, start working on the next one. And that's why there's a lot of Williams that I, not a lot perhaps, but Williams that will be continually discovered because he wrote so much and he wrote more than he could actually publish. And so there are drafts all over the place, and some of them are quite complete drafts. So it, it is a fascinating thing to note about his problem, which is very different than that of other artists. But that was something that came to him while he was at Washington University, seriously, because his friends Clark Mills and William J. Smith noticed it. That Williams and Clark Mills has a quotation where he talks about uh, sits at the typewriter with what Mills calls a demonic energy, mm. and he describes the kind of energy, the kind of feverishness that Williams used at the typewriter. There's a kind of electricity there, and so the, the, again, each different, but Williams' uh, approach was almost a physical, physically demanding approach to writing. It was more than a discipline, as I said before, it was an addiction. It's like he was tormented. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly the word to use. He wrote out of this sense of torment, and he also saw what happened if he, if in a way, if he hadn't been tormented, because Rose had the same kind of depression, mm -hmm. um, but she didn't have the same outlet as he did. And, of course, the results were very different. But he was, it, and it was, he wrote out of torment. I don't think you can say that for every artist. I agree with but that. But Williams, in that sense, is a romantic artist in that he was literally lacerating himself in his work. It was a very disturbing, very brutal, and a very process. And then when he, at the end of his life, when he really couldn't write anymore, he died. And I think that he didn't die at an old age. He was 70. But he had probably said what he had to say, and he couldn't write anymore. Which I find he, often happens enough, with, with people like that. Yeah. Interestingly, Brooke. his death was also ironic, because his literal death was he suffocated on a, the cap of an inhalant. His brother Dakin, by the way, was convinced that Tom was murdered, but that's another story. But here's this artist who is constantly fearing claustrophobia and suffocation, and who, who, who actually died in this ironic manner through suffocation. Mm. It's almost as ironic as the burial place itself. Yeah, I was thinking the same Calvary. thing. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. We've been having a great conversation with author Henry Schwey of his new book, Blue Song, St. Louis in the Life and Work of Tennessee Williams. Folks, if you have not seen a copy of that, you need to get that. He's going to be at the Jewish Community Center for the Jewish Book Festival on Sunday, November 14th at 7 p.m. Henry, thank you very much for coming on St. Louis in Tune. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yes, we have. I'm glad I really enjoyed it myself and enjoyed talking with both of you. Thank you so much, Arnold and, and Mark. I really appreciate it. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider letting us know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcast. You could even write a review. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. 
For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.